It is truly humbling to read or hear about a human who totally defines an area of life that their biography is indistinguishable from a discipline, that their history is also the history of an art. Dr. Raphael Mishulam is one such person. Dr. Mishulam was a titan of cannabis research, and his breakthroughs were breakthroughs for all of us. His setbacks set all of cannabis science back, and his successes were to the benefit of all humanity. Today's episode is unique. On Shaping Fire, we don't do company profiles or product profiles or cannabis personality profiles. We always focus on a topic, and then I curate a guest who is an expert in that area. Shaping Fire is always in service of education instead of cannabis business. But today is different. Today, we're going to look back on the life's work of Dr. Raphael Mishulam, and in doing so, you will not only get an idea of the expansive work and discoveries of Dr. Mishulam, but at the same time, you will get a really engaging history of the last 60 years of cannabis research. Even if you don't fancy yourself someone who listens to biographies, you'll likely find that your interest in cannabis medicine and the history of our favorite plant is plenty to engage you in the scientific work of Dr. Raphael Mishulam, who passed away last week on March 9th, 2023, at the age of 92. Today's episode creates a portrait of a man whose curiosity and unbreakable stamina for research opened the doors for all of us interested in cannabis medicine and made whatever cannabis normalization we are experiencing now possible. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we are giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. Ethan Russo is a board-certified neurologist and former senior medical advisor to GW Pharmaceuticals. He served as study physician to GW Pharmaceuticals for three phase three clinical trials of Sativex. He has held faculty appointments in pharmaceutical sciences at the University of Montana, in medicine at the University of Washington, and as visiting professor at the Chinese Academy of Sciences. He has been president of the International Cannabinoid Research Society and is former chairman of the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines. In 1995, he pursued a three-month sabbatical doing ethnobotanical research with indigenous people in Peru. He is author of several books of cannabis medicine and has published over 30 articles in neurology, pain management, cannabis, and ethnobotany. Dr. Russo has joined us before on Shaping Fire, episode 22 on treating traumatic brain injury with cannabis and mushrooms, and episodes 11 and 27 about his famous research papers on cannabinoids and terpenoids and episode number 67 about treating migraines with mushrooms and cannabis, episode 80 on cannabis hyperemesis syndrome, episode 83 on cannabigerol, CBG, and of course, the Shaping Fire sessions on the Shaping Fire YouTube channel. Today, Dr. Russo joins us to talk about the life's work of his good friend, Dr. Raphael Mishulam. Welcome back to Shaping Fire, Ethan. Thanks. uh, 
unfortunate that uh, this has to come up due to this event, but I, I hope that the message that we impart today will be valuable to people. Yeah, I think so too. I think I think that making sure that this story is uh, preserved for people coming up behind us is is important, and it's uh, it's important to show the the respect for Dr. Mashulam too. So so thanks for joining me today um, for this very special topic. I know you and Dr. Mashulam were very close. Um, but so to get us started, for context, would you give us a little bit about your relationship with him before we get? started looking at his career, um, just so people know uh, from what perspective you're, you're speaking. Uh, sure. So uh, I knew of him by reputation a long time before, but we actually met for the first time in 1999 at the International Cannabinoid Research Society meeting in Acapulco, Mexico. Um, so this is the first time we had to the opportunity to meet one-on-one on -one, uh, and you know uh, chit chat. Uh, he recognized my name as one that uh, uh, could be an Israeli name. Um, and uh, I knew that he had been born to a Sephardic Jewish family in Bulgaria and pointed out to him that my uh, father's family had come from nearby uh, in what is now North Macedonia, a town called uh, Monastir, then currently called Bitola. Uh, so there was an immediate uh, rapport there. Also, I was afforded... Uh, some respect beyond that which I had earned at that time mm -hmm. um, by virtue of being a physician who was interested in cannabis in the endocannabinoid system. So that was a bit of a rarity then. Um, and uh, it, it gave me a little bit of an edge in people taking me seriously. So um, I know that, um, you know, I'm going to ask you a lot of questions today, um, kind of asking you what Dr. Mushulam thought of this or that. And I know it's like, like, it's a hard thing to speak for somebody else, but you worked with him so much over the years and, and were also, you know, kind of social, even, even family friends, I, I think it's fair to say that um, right. you were pretty familiar with his thoughts on both medicine and, you know, the, the world writ large. So, so I know that some of the questions are going to will be more challenging for others because it kind of asks you to say what Dr. Mishulam thought. Um, so, so I appreciate the extra effort you need to put into that. And I also appreciate that, um, you know, you're speaking for somebody else. And so um, if, if I come across something that you're like, you know, uh, I don't, I don't think I, I would know what he would have to say, uh, feel free to just move me on. Sure. So, it's a responsibility, but one I take on willingly. Excellent. Good. Thank you. So, so let's start. Um, what initially inspired Dr. Mishulam to study cannabis and its compounds, and, and how did he become interested in the field? Well, I think he nicely explained this in a resource I think all your listeners would uh, be very find very worthwhile to take an hour and see the film online at YouTube called The Scientist. So if they enter The Scientist and Raphael Meshulam, they'll find this. Um, but uh, to answer your question, uh, it was pretty clear to him. He, he seemed to be the kind of person that uh, wanted to do something novel and important. Um, because of his good education, he was well aware of the fact 
that cannabis had remained a mystery uh, for at least 150 years. Um, for example, uh, morphine was isolated from the opium poppy circa 1804. Similarly, cocaine uh, was identified from coca leaves in the 19th century. But uh, try as they may, uh, scientists around the world were unable to really get isolation of the, quote, active ingredient, unquote, of cannabis. Uh, in the 19th century, there was some isolation of a red oil they call cannabinol, but it wasn't quite uh, right. So he wanted to try to figure out what cannabis had in it. Um, and uh, it just wasn't something that people were paying attention to in the early 1960s. Uh, so that was it. Um, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. Um, you know, there were some real challenges that he faced. Yeah, I, I can imagine not only, you know, you're describing how um, how the you know, scientists around the world were having a hard time isolating things. But, of course, it was all it was all, you know, very much uh, illegal internationally, too. And, and comparatively, it's relatively easy to research cannabis during, you know, this kind of creeping normalization that we're experiencing right now. Uh, a lot different than when Dr. Mishulam began his research in the 1960s. So so what were those challenges that Dr. Mishulam faced in his research due to the fact that it was, you know, not only not legal most places, but it was also demonized worldwide at the behest of the United States. Yes, absolutely. So at the time, um, cannabis was by no means widespread in Israel. In fact, early uh, supply uh, came from Lebanon. Uh, the way I understand it, uh, people on the Lebanese side would come to the edge of the border and uh, throw the parcel of hashish over the barbed wire uh, to someone on the other side, presumably with an exchange of cash. Um, but there were seizures of hashish, and so that's where he got his supply. It was initially from the police. Uh, he tell, used to tell a very funny story about uh, uh, getting help to uh, go to the police and uh, requesting five kilos of hash, which he put in his briefcase and got on a public bus <laughs> um, and uh, became quite odiferous, apparently, en route. But at the time, people just didn't recognize the smell. He figured out subsequently uh, that what he had done was illegal on both sides and that uh, in future he had to go through uh, the police to get a supply of hashish. Um, but basically, from their first five kilos of, of hashish, they used the latest uh, techniques to get a separation of different components and uh, uh, found, isolated, uh, identified the structure of THC and also synthesized it in novo. Uh, that was in 1964. Prior to that, in 1963, um, they had found uh, cannabidiol. So cannabidiol was actually first. Um, but uh, shortly thereafter, we can go through a whole list of other discoveries uh, that came uh, from those initial investigations. Um, before we move forward, I have a, a side question on uh, him getting his uh, research supply of hash from the police. Um, you know, I 
I have seen how traditional hash is made in Lebanon, and, and you described them, you know, chucking it over the fence. Um, I imagine that, you know, the hash that was being gotten from the police was, you know, was dirty and maybe had other, you know, items and hairs and straw from wherever it was made or whatever did did that really matter with this kind of molecular research because you're you're going to do an isolation and just pull out the parts anyway or or well, was that was it harder to work with that kind of uh, product uh, yeah no you're right it absolutely had to be there'd be all these impurities and one way or another um you'd have to uh, get through the crudity of the initial material to get down to the isolates of the compounds of interest. So I have no doubt it was more technically difficult. Yeah, I can believe that. So so in 1963, Dr. Mishulam started researching tetrahydrocannabinol, aka THC specifically. Would you explain how he suspected it was present and the process by which he discovered and isolated it? Um, yeah, basically, they use separation columns. But, you know, in terms of it was well, well known that uh, hashish and cannabis were psychoactive. And it was a matter of identifying which compound or compounds were responsible. And that includes um, uh, series of steps of fractionation and then uh, fractionation again to get down to the uh, pure compound hopefully that uh, really is responsible for the activity um, you know at that time uh, testing would have to be done in animals and they use monkeys for better or worse for a lot of the initial work um, but, uh, you know, they, they found so many things. It wasn't just THC. Uh, also in 1964, they isolated cannabigerol. Um, they published on that uh, with his, his partner, Yehil Gaoni. Um, and um, even at the time, I, you know, in reading Professor Mishulam's old work, I'm just struck with the prescience that he had uh, his predictions about things. Uh, very quickly, they identified that cannabigerol had to be the parent compound um, to THC and CBD. Um, but that same year, they identified the uh, acid cannabinoids, which ultimately were identified later as the, the actual parent compounds um, in the fresh plant before decarboxylation. Uh, and then in 66, uh, they found cannabichromine. And then there were a whole bunch of minors like cannabicyclol. Uh, but they didn't stop there. And this is one of the things I would always appreciate about Rafi was he was a chemist. Most chemists are happy to stay in their lane. That was never enough for him. He always wanted to do more. What was the biological function? How can we figure out what this does? So by 1970, they had tested uh, all of these compounds and basically found that um, uh, THC was mostly responsible. And they made an important distinction. Even today, uh, you know, some 60 years later almost, um, People make the mistake of saying that CBD or CBG are not psychoactive. This is absolutely wrong. Both of them are. What they should say is 
they're not intoxicating. But back in 1970, Professor Mishulam knew that, and he said that these other substances were not psychotomimetic, which was a fancy way of saying that they didn't make you crazy when you took them. Um, and that was true throughout his career. Um, again, he did not confine himself to the lab and was heavily involved in clinical pursuits uh, with his discoveries. Um, you said that he discovered um, cannabidiol before THC. When he started looking at cannabidiol, was his first thought that that might be uh, the substance that was ta- causing in- intoxication and it wasn't? Yeah, I, I don't think so. There had been some prior work actually done in the United States by a German refugee named Lowe. Um, and cannabidiol had been um, identified um, almost perfectly in 1940, um, but uh, they didn't nail down the actual three-dimensional structure until Professor Mishulam in 1963. Um, so, you know, there, in science, there are often these incremental developments, and we'd have to say that that was one of them. So from the timeline that you set up of, of the different labs uh, discovering the different cannabinoids and, and figuring out their structure and isolating them, it sounds like, um, you know, this time between, you know, 1960 and the early 70s, it was like, bang, 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 one cannabinoid after another. <laughs> and, and, you know, that must have been not only like an exciting time to be doing this initial research to finally kind of like crack the, you know, cannabis secret. Um, but also, you know, THC was something that, that people could immediately tell there was going to be medicinal use for. What was the significance, like both in science, but also perhaps in society writ large, um, what was the significance of the discovery of THC and impact at that time? Well, uh, I'd like to take this on a couple of levels. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, its first notoriety came as an intoxicant, um, certainly. Um, again, being an extremely educated and well-read person, Professor Mishulam was very familiar with medicinal uses of cannabis throughout the ages, and I'm sure that the wheels were turning with him uh, very, uh, very quickly. But um, people have to understand how earth-shattering um, these discoveries were. For example, most uh most psychoactive drugs prior to this time were alkaloids, so they were water-soluble substances. The cannabinoids were absolutely a different kettle of fish um, because they were lipid-soluble and not alkaloids. Um, you know, they had no nitrogen in them. Um, so this really was a bit strange, and it made the material very hard to handle. Um, you know, we usually dissolve things in water, and um, you know, instead you have these lipid-soluble, sticky substances that are sticking onto the glassware and everything else. It's never been easy to work with this stuff. Um, yeah, uh, but and again, he he quickly pivoted into looking at uh, clinical indications and. Probably the first one that really came to the fore 
um, was uh, the idea of cannabidiol as an anticonvulsant. Uh, so, you know, at this time, um, he was isolating these different components from hashish and sharing them with other scientists. And uh, there was a great collaboration between the Israelis and the Brazilian scientists, um, uh, doctors Cunha and Carlini. Uh, in 1980, they published the first clinical study of cannabidiol as an anticonvulsant um, in nine patients and uh, very successful. And, you know, I, I would point out that these were all people that um, had failed treatment with uh, available drugs at that time. Um, now, people may be really struck by the fact that was 1980. We didn't get approval of cannabidiol as an anticonvulsant, as epidiolex in this country, until 2018. Um, so there was this huge gap of time uh, that he was very uh, surprised and outraged by, uh, that this work had gone on, had shown such great promise, and yet got ignored uh, for all that time. This might be as much of a question about the scientific method as it is about Dr. Mishulam, but um, what about cannabidiol um, ca caused Dr. Mishulam to, air quotes, suspect that cannabidiol was an anticonvulsant? Was there something in the nature or something that he had seen in people who, who used hashish, or, or was it the, the structure of the molecule itself that he could look at and envision how that would interact with the human body? No, I'm really going to attribute to his open-mindedness. Mm. What I mean by that was he was uh, very aware of historical references to cannabis uh, as an anticonvulsant coming from the Arab world. Um, and these dated back many centuries. Um, so there was a suspicion that hashish um, could work as an anticonvulsant. And then it was a matter of seeing what component or components might be responsible. Mm -hmm. um, and why he honed in on cannabidiol probably was because um, uh, they were aware at that time that it wouldn't be intoxicating. Uh, and uh, so it would have an advantage if it worked. Uh, it wouldn't have the liability that mm -hmm. can be attached to THC. Yeah, we, we, we still experience that difference even today. Sure. Um, so I talk with a lot of research scientists, uh, on shaping fire and more or less, they fall into three different groups. Um, scientists that study an intoxicating substance, um, but they, they never touch it themselves because they are, they are not the kind of person who enjoys intoxicants. And then in the middle, you've, you've got scientists that, you know, don't use whatever it is regularly. Um, but they have used it to understand what the human experience is. And then you've got research researchers that research drugs and they like using them as well. Um, did Dr. Mishulam use cannabis or have any personal <laughs> appreciation for it? Uh, I'm going to have to equivocate a bit. Mm -hmm. um, he would tell a story of uh, first human experiences in, in trying THC, um, and it went something like this. They had invited friends and colleagues uh, to a dinner party and his wife, Dahlia, who is a, is a wonderful person, um, had made a cake 
um, and uh, there were portions of 10 milligrams of THC. I think that there were 10 people involved. Um, five didn't show any obvious effects. Uh, five did, one an anxiety reaction, the others um, felt something or felt different um, in ways that you might imagine. Uh, one um, said nothing had happened, but was laughing outrageously <laughs> every few minutes. And another one said nothing happened, but never stopped talking. So <laughs> you can draw your own conclusions. What he didn't say in relating this story was whether he was one of the 10, but I imagine he was. I can attest to the fact that he was not a regular user of cannabis. Right on. Thank you for that story. That's great. So um, another key cannabinoid that uh, Dr. Mishum is credited for, and we haven't brought up yet, is is actually one of my favorites, uh, anandamide. And he discovered it in 1992. Right. Uh, would you tell us about the discovery of anandamide and what it meant for endocannabinoid science and kind of patient health generally? Sure. Yeah, I think we just have to back up a little bit to mm -hmm. 2018. Um, so at that time, uh, William Devane in the lab of Alain Howlett at St. Louis University um, had discovered a cannabinoid receptor. So, uh, and I'm going to back up a little more. Prior to that time, uh, people had no idea how THC worked. The working theory was that it somehow... Um, disrupted the membranes of the neurons in the way that alcohol, ethanol, does. Um, but there uh, were synthetic cannabinoids that were being made, and uh, these were stereoselective. That's a way of saying that uh, if the molecule had one configuration in three-dimensional space, it, it worked. It was intoxicating. However, if it didn't have the right one, it didn't work. That implied that there must be a receptor where the thing was working. So the search was on for a cannabinoid receptor. And again, that was found in 2018, subsequently known to us now as CB1, the, uh, the cannabinoid one receptor. Um, so uh, after that, there was an all-hands-on-deck search for endogenous ligands. That's a way of saying that people were looking for molecules within us, endogenous cannabinoids, now called endocannabinoids, that would bind with this receptor. Um, but uh, again, it, it was super difficult. Um, the thing that set Professor Mishulam apart was he thought, the endogenous molecules, rather than being peptides, um, you know, short amino acid uh, molecules, uh, rather would have to be a lipid um, to uh, lodge on this receptor, um, so analogous to THC. Um, and then things get really interesting, because there they were in Israel. Uh, this is in the lab, again, with William Devane and Lumir Hanush, um, his associates at that time. And um, they looked for th these endogenous cannabinoids in pig brains. Now, again, that's anachronistic for sure. Um, I can tell you that Jerusalem, where the work was done, is a very kosher city. Um, 
but um, there was a place in Tel Aviv that uh, they could get the pig brains. Uh, and they said each time they went back, the price went up. Uh, but after painstaking work over a couple of years, they had a tiny fraction of this material that they identified chemically um, as arachidonal ethanolamide. Uh, then they had fun deciding what the common name of the molecule should be. Uh, as it turned out, William Devane was a Sanskrit scholar, um, and um, he knew that the Sanskrit word for bliss was ananda. So they called it anandamide, uh, which is a, a great name, a beautiful coinage. Um, and uh, they kept looking. They found other related molecules. And in 1994, they uh, discovered another called 2-arachidonoglycerol, uh, less flashy name, just 2-AG for short. Uh, that was in 95, yeah. Uh, but uh, then, again, didn't stop there. They found hundreds of related molecules that seemingly didn't do a lot on their own. Um, but in putting these together in different combinations, by 1998, they figured out that there was synergy when you had the main players uh, with these less active or inactive uh, related molecules. Uh, hence, the concept of the entourage effect was mm -hmm. born in 1998. So, um, so far we have discussed um you know maybe even a dozen at least 10 different uh cannabinoids and you know functioning aspects of the endocannabinoid system that dr mishulam is credited for um to round out this group is there is there anything of significance um any other cannabinoids or that that he discovered that we should make sure we mention at this time that we haven't so far well, again, just uh, to make sure we do justice to his work, uh, his discoveries included CBD, THC, CBG, CBC, um, the acid cannabinoids, CBNA, CBDA, CBGA, uh, cannabicyclol, and likely a few more. Um, that's right. a great answer. I couldn't have asked for anything better. Thank you. <laughs> so, so I know kind of like, you know, as we, as we wrap up the first set here, you know, I, I know the entirety of the first set has been how, you know, we've been talking about how Dr. Mishulam's research, you know, um, changed our understanding, uh, uh, very specifically of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system. On a, on a level of perspective, kind of like one level of magnitude up, like what impact did this entire body of research have on both the scientific, I don't know, acceptance and interest in cannabis and in the attraction of more scientists to dive in because Dr. Mishulam's research opened up the area? Yeah, I, in a word, it affected it profoundly. Um, what we see, if you track the number of publications on cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system, there was a huge growth um, in the early 90s, uh, which has continued for for some time. You know, once these molecules, particularly endocannabinoids, were identified, it then was a matter of experimenting them to see where they are and what they do. And the fascinating thing in retrospect is 
every organ system, every type of uh, physiological function that was examined, there was a role for the endocannabinoid system. Mm -hmm. So again, we had uh, discovery of cannabinoid compounds, then the endogenous cannabinoids. they had to figure out uh, how they were made and broken down, the metabolic and catabolic enzymes, how they were regulated. Um, so you can see how there was this expansion, sort of a pyramid uh, effect of uh, research opportunities, and uh, they were pursued around the world. Now, unfortunately, that is not extended to enlightenment on the political side. Um, nor um, did it totally break down the barriers to research, which still remain in this country. Admittedly, it's easier to study cannabis now than it was then, but it still remains very difficult. Yeah, um, that is certainly the case. I, I can imagine after Dr. Mishulam's, um, you know, earliest discoveries, he never... Um, he never wanted for funding, though, uh, during his career, because like, it sounds like he was an early celebrity, and and I just assume that well, he was well funded at that point. Is that is that accurate? Uh, up to a point, but it, only after a certain point. His first uh, application of the National Institutes of Health, which then is now has been the main funder of biomedical research domestically and internationally. But his first application was turned down with the explanation that nobody uses cannabis here. Uh-huh. You know, this is circa 1963. Um, then the tune changed. Um, partly it was because of this discovery. Uh, but additionally, there seemed to be a political uh, rationale. Um, uh, uh, something to the effect that a senator's son was busted for, quote, marijuana, unquote, um, and wanted to know if it was going to make him per- permanently crazy. Oh, um, all of a sudden, NIH was more interested in cannabis and cannabinoids. And for the subsequent 40 years, uh, Professor Mishulam uh, had NIH funding annually. It's <laughs> a good story. All right. So, so we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. Without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard them on Shaping Fire. The cannabis seed market is filled with big name and hype breeders fighting to get your attention. And occasionally, you discover a breeder who is breeding because it is the only thing they care to do, and they would be doing it even if they never made a dime. That's my friend Craig Hartsaw, who makes seeds as magnetic genetics. Craig comes from five generations of farmers and is earning his master's degree in horticulture right now. He's been growing cannabis for 15 years and been breeding for nine. He hasn't sold many seeds because he really isn't a sales guy, but I've personally been growing his seeds for years, and I know I can always rely on his seeds to germinate, thrive, and smell and taste great. I suggested to Craig that he should probably sell some seeds and asked if he had enough stockpiled to bother. Much to my shock, he was sitting on five full menus in cold storage that he produced in the last two years and hadn't even tried to sell any of them. He was simply too busy breeding. Well, we, his friends, convinced him to make his damn seeds available to the people, and now they are. For the first time anywhere, you can now buy magnetic genetic seeds at Neptune Seed Bank and on Strainly.io. 
Neptune Seed Bank has just picked up magnetic genetics for a trial to gauge your interest. They are carrying three strains from his Mean Mug, Prominence, and Turpinado menus, which are exclusive to Neptune. It's an easy way to score his seeds. You can pick up those menus plus his Hillbilly Skunk and Candy Breath Crosses and more on his profile page on Strainly.io. If you want very affordable seeds that are exceptional quality with rare terpene profiles from a good guy, go to NeptuneSeedBank.com or Strainly.io. Sometimes it is fun to buy the hype thing from the brand you admire, but when you're ready to buy the strain you'll love from an obscure mad scientist, you're ready for Magnetic Genetics. MagneticGenetics.org and on Instagram. Magnetic Genetics. One of the reasons why no-till cannabis growing is so valued by farmers is because the mycelium networks in the soil remain established from year to year. And we know these fungal networks are essential because they are the nutrient superhighways that extend far and wide in the substrate to feed your plants. The trouble with growing in new living soils or blended cocoa substrates is that it takes most of the plant's life just to create these mycelium highways. Dynomyco endomycorrhizal fungi inoculant reduces that time and gets your plant eating a wider array of nutrients faster. And it's three times the concentration of the other popular brand in the U.S. at 900 propagules per gram of two fungal species selected specifically for cannabis cultivation. Dynomyco is the result of 30 years of research and trials at the Volcani Agriculture Research Institute in Israel. It has also been vigorously trialed by cannabis and food growers across the U.S. Dynomyco is now available at grow shops and on Amazon in the United States. I love using Dynomyco to both speed up the growth of the mycelium networks in the soil, but also as a biostimulant to make clone cuttings more virile. You can see side-by-sides showing the comparative growth on their Instagram at Dynomyco. If you demand reliable growing results and appreciate the importance of an active root zone in creating a thriving plant, I encourage you to check out Dynomyco.com and use the store locator to find out where you can get yours. That's D-Y-N-O-M-Y-C-O.com. Shaping Fire listeners can get 10% off any size of Dynamico on Amazon or Dynamico.com by using the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, one word, no caps. Whether you are starting with new beds or pots, or if you want to add some zing to tired soil, choose Dynamico to maximize your plant's potential. Dynamico Endomycorrhizal Inoculant. There are so many seed banks nowadays that you really have options in who to choose. Not only that, if you pick the wrong seed bank, you could be in for a really sketchy ride. And that's only one of the reasons I recommend Gas Lamp Seeds to my friends and listeners who are looking for a seed bank. You probably already know Gas Lamp Seeds as Hembra Genetics. Hembra recently changed their name to Gas Lamp Seeds. Gaslamp Seeds is not just another seed bank. Gaslamp is a female-operated boutique cannabis genetics provider that only sells thoughtfully curated seeds from the top names in cannabis breeding. With over 60 breeders and over a thousand strains to choose from, you will certainly find something you'll love. Gaslamp Seeds has something for everyone, with over 650 feminized strains, 300 regular varieties, and over 200 autoflowers to choose from. Names you know you can trust, like Compound Genetics, Humboldt Seed Company, Night Owl, In-House, Fast Buds, Gnome Automatics, and Ethos.
And we both know that there are other seed banks who will take your money but have no customer service. I invited Gaslamp to advertise on Shaping Fire after hearing so many good stories about them from my friends. They have A-plus customer service with lightning-fast response times. In most cases, Helene and Caitlin will get your order out the same day you place it. Most seed banks are simply not this organized or interested in getting your seeds to you so fast. But Gaslamp Seeds cares. You even get free seeds with every order. Helene and Caitlin get it. They have been in the cannabis growing scene for over a decade. Want some extra freebies? Use the code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout, and they will give you an additional set of Gaslamp-provided freebies. That's an extra $30 in free seeds. Buy seeds from good folks who will send you great seeds reliably every time. Visit GaslampSeeds.com today. That's Gaslamp Seeds. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shangolos, and my guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. So during the first set, we talked, you know, uh, mostly about the the timeline of Dr. Mishulam's discoveries and clearly how it impacted not only the the research of cannabis itself as a drug, but in a, in a larger form, the endocannabinoid system, and then the impacts that it had on medical research for humans as a whole. Where I want to start out here in second set is that, you know, how has Dr. Mishulam's research impacted the development of, of cannabis-based medicines? Um, and what potential therapeutic applications have derived from his work so far, um, you know, contemporarily? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the first obvious ones are, uh, you know, the classic cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids from the plant. So at this time, uh, in terms of cannabis-based medicines, uh, we have synthetic THC as Marinol, which has never had big impact, but um, Sativex is uh, an extract of two different chemovars of cannabis, one rich in THC and one rich in CBD. Um, and that's approved in 30 countries around the world for treatment of spasticity and multiple sclerosis, but not in the U.S. In the U.S., um, for the last few years, we have had uh, 98% pure cannabidiol as epidiolex for treatment of severe epilepsy syndromes. But again, um, we're looking at uh, future developments related to cannabigerol, cannabichromine, and many others. And uh, I need to extend the conversation to talk about the uh, semi-synthetic analogs that uh, Professor Mishulam made. And um, perhaps we could run through those. Yeah, please do, because I'm not sure what those are. Okay. Well, uh, you know, chemists like to take a molecule and see how it might be, quote, improved, unquote, meaning different, meaning patentable, or longer lasting or more potent. So a good example there would be what's called HU210. So the HU medicines were uh, all discovered by Professor Mishulam at Hebrew University. So that's where the HU uh, derives. So HU210 um, was um, a dimethylheptyl derivative of THC. 
So instead of just a five carbon side chain, it was a seven carbon side chain with two methyl groups on it. And that made it more potent and longer lasting. So HU210 um, is something, I believe, on the order of 50 to 100 times more potent than THC. And it's been a very important agent in laboratory studies of the endocannabinoid system, but not a drug for clinical use. Um, it has appeared occasionally in synthetic cannabinoids, but it's not something I would ever recommend anybody taking. Uh, I have a colleague who did and spent the whole weekend um uh, with a very bad experience. Um, let's leave it at that. Uh, I'll never tell. <laughs> um, a, a closely related molecule was HU211. Now, this one actually got into the clinics, um, but wasn't approved, and that's a bit of a sad story. So this uh, had the name dexanabinol. Um, this was investigated by a now defunct company called Pharmos, uh, an Israeli company. They developed this for treatment of severe head injuries. The idea being that they would give this intravenously after someone had a severe head injury, and hopefully it would help prevent damage uh, from the, the head trauma. Um, however, after this was licensed to the company, um, they never consulted Professor Mishulam again. Um, I think that they made a big mistake in that because they, again, only used this once um, after the onset of the head injury and, and not subsequently. It worked in phase two clinical trials, but in phase three, nothing. Uh, just didn't work. Um, I wonder, in retrospect, whether they had given, uh, administered it multiple times. The result could have been different, but that's probably a done deal at this point. Mm -hmm. And then there were a variety of agents he developed that yet could make it to the clinics. Um, Professor Mishulam was very active in research on CB2, the non-psychoactive receptor that's important in pain and inflammation. Um, he thought that uh, one of the things the endocannabinoid system did was provide uh, protection from non-infectious insults or, or non-immunologic insults. Um, he developed a medicine called HU308, which is very active at the CB2 receptor, but not active at CB1. Uh, so it wouldn't be intoxicating, and that's been investigated uh, for arthritic conditions. Um, and then more recently, in 2018, um, he came out with uh, HU580. Um, so what this is, is they took the cannabidiolic acid molecule, which is unstable, CBDA, and uh, they made it a methyl ester. Um, what that means is they put this group on it that made it shelf-stable, and uh, it could be a prodrug. In other words, when taken into the body, it would break down spontaneously into CBDA, uh, which in testing has shown um, very powerful activity on the serotonin 1A receptor where CBD also works, but it's somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times more potent. So this may have application in treating nausea, 
of different causes, um, among other things. Uh, also might have a, a role in treating anxiety, um, but uh, that really hasn't gotten to the clinic yet. There's still um, could be could be developments there. So I have a. Um a two-part question. It is a uh, it's a request for a vocabulary clarification, uh, but then also I would like you to explain its use in the lab. And and here's here's what it is. Um, you began the answer talking about the cannabis analogs that Doctor Mishulam had created, and so when you said that, I'm like, all right, uh, that sounds like synthetic cannabinoids uh, to me. And we've discussed uh, both you and I, and then and then on other episodes about how synthetic cannabinoids can be useful in the lab, but um, it's not as great when they get out of the lab and people try to take them as if they're from nature and they're not. But so you started by describing these, these analogs that Dr. Mishulam was making, and then you described these agents that Dr. Mishulam was making, and then you seem to contrast and say, and also synthetic cannabinoids, where if he made them, it sounds like they're all synthetic cannabinoids. So, so the first part of the answer, I'd like you to tease those apart. But then second, for people who have never thought about the use of synthetic cannabinoids in, in research, in the lab only, but not actually used out in the real world, would you explain what that, that lab tool is for? Sure. Uh, so again, of the ones I mentioned, HU210 was the only one that was a CB1 agonist. Um, so, you know, would cause intoxication. So HU210 and related drugs in the lab would be used to look at binding. Um, so uh, say you had an unknown substance, you wanted to compare its activity to something, it could be compared to HU210. Uh, as, as one example, uh, whether your new substance could displace HU210 from the receptor, uh, compete with it. Uh, so it'd be a measure of potency. Um, and, you know, you're correct. I have decried the use of high potency CB1 agonists as um, potentially quite dangerous. Uh, but these other agents, HU211, 308, 580, uh, were all for entirely different purposes and really would have no activity on the CB1 receptor. I see. So, so it, it sounds like analog agent and synthetic cannabinoids are probably in the same bucket, but we delineate between them because some of them are for use solely in the lab and 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 should not be used outside by by right. for people for either medicinal or recreational reasons. But then the other ones are also synthetic, but they're also promising as, as actual healthy medicines. And so we, we just refer to them differently then. Quite right. Okay, great. Quite right. Cool. Thank you. Um, so, uh, while, while Dr. Mishulam's role was clearly set in pharmaceuticals, right, you and I have spoken on this program often about our, our, both of ours belief in whole plant medicine, whole plant cannabis resin. What were Dr. Mishulam's personal thoughts about whole plant medicine and using the whole resin instead of isolating compounds and then mix and matching them to make something patentable since he worked in the pharmaceutical realm, but also, his heart was in pure medicine. Uh, and, you know, he straddled both worlds. Um, uh, 
part of uh, the time that we worked most closely together was between um, 2003 and 2014. We were both uh, working actively uh, with GW Pharmaceuticals. Um, they would have an annual research meeting, uh, which uh, he attended, I attended uh, as an uh Scientific uh, senior medical advisor at that time to the company. Um, so we worked with people at the company and also with other cannabinoid scientists, mainly European, um, and get together and talk about projects and plans. And um, a lot of what we know now about cannabidiol, cannabigerol, and the others came from that research. So he absolutely understood and aided uh, the development of these whole plant medicines, uh, Sativex and Epidiolex. Um, at the same time, he was working on the semi-synthetic analogs. Um, I would highlight a point of difference, perhaps, uh, he and I. Um, I'm not so sure he was absolutely convinced um, of the role of the terpenoids uh, in cannabis. Uh, you may recall I pointed out in 1998 he had coined uh, the term with Professor Ben Shabbat uh, of the entourage effect initially applied to endogenous cannabinoids. The next year, the same pair uh, published another article and pointed out that the same thing could apply to cannabis, uh, the idea that um, plants might be better medicines than their single components. Well, I, I already felt that way, and I really seized upon this. And although some people have misattributed coining the term, the entourage effect, to me, I didn't. I may have popularized it um, through my efforts to show the synergy between terpenoids and cannabinoids. I think um, he needed a little more convincing. Uh, at the time, in 1999, they pointed out that this idea that plants could be better medicine than uh, single compounds uh, was a theory. Um, but in the ensuing 24 years, um, we've had a lot of proof for that theory. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, a good scientist um, is thinking about possibilities and also retaining uh, an air of skepticism. I think that's necessary. Sometimes you have to play devil's advocate with your colleagues or with yourself. Well, yeah, because the the whole point is that we're hypothesizing. We don't want to go into it assuming we're right. So we have to we have to be our own devil's advocate. Sure. Yeah. So much has changed in cannabis research in the last decade of Dr. Mishulam's life. Like, what was Dr. Mishulam's opinion on the current state of cannabis research and the potential for new discoveries in the field? Well, I he never stopped working. Um, you know, he continued uh, throughout his career to find new things to do. Uh, we've mentioned many of his accomplishments, but uh, in more recent decades, um, he worked uh, with the late Etai Bob on uh, endocannabinoids and their role in treating osteoporosis. Um, he did uh, some clinical work on cannabidiol for graft versus host disease um, that affects transplant patients. Um, and it, it really never ended. Uh, again, the more recent work uh, on um, 
making the methyl esters of the acid cannabinoids to make them more stable. Um, and uh, also the important work on uh, the CB2 receptor done with Paul Pacher, uh, who's at the National Institutes of Health, and the idea that uh, the endocannabinoid system provided protection from non-infectious insults. Um, so it, it never ended. Um, so the, the, the wording of this question is, is kind of... Um... I guess juvenile, but um, I, th I think the point of it is good. Uh, you know, as as can cannabinoid research expanded here in the last you know fifteen years or so, did did Doctor Mishulam was he at all annoyed that there were people who were not approaching cannabis medicine properly in some way because there were so many people do it, or was he generally thinking that this was badass that there were all these different types of scientists looking into it? Ah. Uh you know, he was not prone to criticize uh, that often. However, he was quite uh, willing to decry the dearth of clinical work mm. um, that had gone on in, in any number of areas. Uh, you know, this is certainly manifest by the fact that, again, here's a bench scientist um, with a uh, uh, lifetime record of accomplishment, and when the International Association for Cannabinoid Medicines, a clinical group, was begun in 2001, he was right there at every meeting um, and um, contributing um, and encouraging people to do more work. Uh, so that was another place that uh, we we got together. Uh, all told, I tallied it up. Um, after word of his demise and um he and i were together at meetings or working together in at least 14 different countries <laughs> so <laughs> that actually must have been a pretty heartfelt list that you worked on after his passing last week you bet yeah um to wrap up this set i, I was curious you know we you told that great story about about you know the cake uh but how did dr mishulam view the use of cannabis for recreational purposes like in society um and and has his research affected his stance over the years um, yeah, a little bit of a tough one. It's not something he talked about a lot. You know, my impression would be that he thought that a lot of it was a distraction. Um, and he was laser focused on clinical applications um, for this system. Um, so he, he wasn't a prohibitionist um, overtly in any kind of sense. Um, but I think you know, far more interesting to him was how can we harness these substances uh, to treat disease? Yeah, I can see him being all, listen, I'm trying to get the labs going. I'm trying to get funding. And you guys getting busted for illegal weed is in the news that it's not helpful. <laughs> so not, not that right. he was necessarily he was against never the use. So, yeah. Right. He was, he was never so overt about it, but I, I'm sure he may have harbored internal feelings of a similar nature. Yeah, I can follow that. All right. Thank you. So we're going to take another short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. There are a lot of good people launching new businesses in cannabis, psilocybin, and other psychedelics, and it's a very strange time for us. In the same moment that psilocybin mushrooms are illegal at the federal level, they are becoming increasingly legal in states across the country. 
These businesses leading the way into the future of plant medicines require specialized legal representation by attorneys who have depth not only in litigation, mergers, and acquisitions, but also in psychedelic and other plant medicines. Greenlight Law Group has been empowering cannabis businesses since 2014, and as the market has diversified into psilocybin and other plant medicines, Greenlight has been right there, evolving with their diverse clients to provide legal expertise with a high level of legal acumen, creative strategy, and precision that comes with an intimate and specific understanding of both business law and plant medicine. If you are a business owner trying to navigate the layered local and national drug laws on your own, you are at risk of fumbling. These confusing and quickly changing laws complicate everything. Greenlight Law Group is ready to help you when hit with a lawsuit, or because you were shafted by a vendor or business partner, or simply because you want to stay legal and could use some preventative guidance before cultivating a controlled substance as an entrepreneur. Greenlight Law Group is a collection of folks who care profoundly about their work, and I know this is true because I know the folks from Greenlight. There is a huge difference between a big legal firm who has decided to start representing a few drug companies versus working with a collection of high-integrity, passionate lawyers who are personally interested in new plant medicines and firmly believe in their power to heal. Contact Greenlight Law Group today and learn more about the services they can offer your industry-leading cannabis or psychedelics company. That's Greenlight Law Group at greenlightlawgroup.com. Online cannabis seed distributors often seem to be all the same, but Multiverse Beans constantly works to provide you with cannabis seeds and a buying experience that you won't find elsewhere. Multiverse Beans works directly with the breeders to secure as many packs of your favorites as possible so that they have your favorite beans long after others have sold out. Some shops simply buy breeder minimums, but I get messages all the time from breeders saying some version of Multiverse asked to buy my entire run. At MultiverseBeans.com, you can find rare cannabis seeds from Night Owl Seeds, including the Dark Owl sublabel. Mephisto Genetics, Square One Genetics, Robin Hood Seeds, and Ethos, and so many others. Multiverse also initiates projects with breeders to secure exclusive packs that you simply won't find elsewhere. Multiverse founder Paul Lal sees himself not only as a curator of the best cannabis seeds available, but also as a collaborator with breeders, trying to bring novel crosses to the market that his customers are asking for. Multiverse Beans also creates exclusive stickers for their popular seed varieties that are available free only when you order those seeds from Multiverse. Check out their stickers like the badass recent slap for Mothman by Gnome Automatics on Instagram at Multiverse Beans. And finally, the freebies. As you'd expect, Paul sends quality freebies with every order. And when you spend at least $150, Multiverse allows you to choose your freebies from their special selections. You can get a 10% discount off regularly priced items when you use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout. Sign up for their mailing list to be eligible for their monthly seed giveaway worth $250. So go to multiversebeans.com now for a buying experience you won't get anywhere else. As cannabis regulations become more demanding and consumers become more educated, it is increasingly important to avoid the use of chemical pesticides when cultivating cannabis. 
Beneficial insects have been used for decades by the greenhouse vegetable and ornamental plant industry, and today many cannabis cultivators are moving from sprays and chemicals to beneficial insects. Copert has the beneficial insects, mites, and nematodes, microbials, sticky cards, and air distribution units you need to partner with nature to defend your garden. Whether you manage acres of canopy or have a simple grow tent in your home, Copert is ready to help answer your questions and help you transition away from chemical sprays towards clean and natural solutions. Since 1967, Copert has assisted growers in identifying pests and devising reliable solutions while providing healthy insects and mites that will protect your yield. Since the 1990s, Copert has been a leader in cannabis pest and disease control worldwide and have highly trained consultants to assist you in Canada and the United States from coast to coast. With their global network of grower support, Copert can help. Visit copert.com, choose your country, and get detailed information. That's copert, K-O-P-P-E-R-T dot com. For the most up-to-date cannabis-related biological control information, you can also check their Instagram at Copert Canada. You know getting away from pesticides is good for health and good for business, and Copert is ready to help. Visit copert.com today. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shangolos, and my guest today is Dr. Ethan Russo. So, Ethan, how has Dr. Mishulam's work impacted the development of new drug therapies beyond cannabis? I can imagine that there are other areas of medicine that are benefiting from his research. Uh, again, um, the uh, endocannabinoid system is ubiquitous. It is the major homeostatic regulator of human physiology and that of all higher animals. Um, so it's had a huge impact. Unfortunately, that hasn't extended towards education of medical students on the system and its importance. Um, so uh, again, you know, this idea that there were these lipid molecules rather than water-soluble solu molecules, the cannabinoids, uh, led to a real expansion. Um, you know, the endocannabinoid system isn't really confined uh, to the two known cannabinoid receptors, it's become a much broader concept and includes a number of the TRIP receptors and even some of the uh, serotonin receptors, particularly serotonin 1A, um, which I'm happy to say w uh, was an extension of uh, work that I did with colleagues at the University of Montana back in 2005. Um, so it, it's been an ever-expanding, it's like the tendrils of the plant have extended in all these areas of science. Um, it's been an amazing thing to see um, over the 30 years since the discovery of the endocannabinoid system. You know, that's one of the reasons why some people are even skeptical or suspicious of cannabis, because they say, oh, you people talk about it like it's a panacea. It's like, like as if it's going to solve all these things. And, and that only comes from people who don't understand the endocannabinoid system, because that is the whole point. It's everywhere. And so by working with cannabinoids, you can work on all these different ailments. And um, I, don't, I don't think that the skepticism for that is going to be overcome until more people are familiar with how the endocannabinoid system actually functions. Quite right. You know, again, it, it's important to say there really aren't 
a lot of things that cannabis cures. However, there are a tremendous number of things that cannabis treats effectively, mm -hmm. uh, at least as an adjunct, mm -hmm. uh, if not directly. So what was... What did Dr. Mishulam feel was like the most rewarding aspect of his uh, career? I mean, uh, his his list of of recognitions and awards are it's a long list, but but the list of what he achieved is different than the achievements that he himself was most proud of. Well, you know that's a hard one for me to say. Um, he was not the kind of guy that. Uh, rested on his proverbial laurels um there was always more work to do so i don't think it's something you'd dwell on mm -hmm. um you know when we look at this list of accomplishments over the course of six decades it's astounding but the obvious pattern is the guy never quit working uh or thinking about what's next um so, uh, to me, he was a role model in that regard. Um, you know, it's uh, to an extent, if I can compare myself, it's the same thing. When I get a paper accepted for publication, I'm happy for a little while, but um, thinking about what's next. Um, <laughs> fair, fair, fair so, enough. it's I mean, sort of the restless mind syndrome. While Dr. Mishulam was uh, involved um, in cannabis policy creation in Israel much more than ever in the United States, um, what advice do you think Dr. Mishulam would give to U.S. policymakers and regulators regarding the regulation of cannabis and cannabis-based medicines? I think it'd be really concise, and that would be to follow the science. Um, again, I have no doubt that he had uh, pervasive... Uh, skepticism about the ability of politicians to incorporate the kind of scientific knowledge uh, that was going on in this area. Um, but I, I don't remember him wasting a lot of time with criticism of that. Uh, there might be some remark in passing, but again, uh, his concentration was always on advancement of the science. Mm -hmm. um so, so looking forward, I mean, clearly Dr. Mishulam um, mentored so many, and and he even mentored so many people who never met him, right? Who who knew him through his research and his interviews. What advice do you think that Dr. Mishulam would give to young researchers interested in studying cannabis and its compounds now? Well, I think the first thing he'd say was expect to work hard. Um, it is a very deep and uh, difficult field. I mean, the thing that attracted me when I really got into it circa 1996 was, uh, boy, this is complex, but it's all so exciting. Um, and uh, boy, I, I became addicted to cannabinoid knowledge very quickly and uh, led to a career change. And that's happened to plenty of other scientists and physicians. Um, but um, you know, I have to really identify his personal role uh, in this because um, the thing that most people who met or uh, corresponded with Dr. Mishulam will tell you was how availing he was of um, his time in helping them with whatever question they posed to him. 
Um, so I've met hundreds of people, not just scientists, who said, you know, I wrote to him and I was shocked. He got back to me and, you know, or even we talked on the phone or Zoom and he gave me all this time and people are just blown away by that. Um, but that's the way he was. Um, as he explained, he didn't, didn't have a lot of hobbies, but he was always willing to talk about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it's kind of an amazing set of cir- circumstances that Dr. Mishulam you know, even got to be a researcher. His, his family was persecuted by the Nazis. His father was placed in a concentration camp and survived. And eventually, Dr. Mishum found his way to Israel, where you know we all know his research blossomed. Of course, as a Jewish person, this would have been part of his culture and his awareness of his entire life. In what ways do you think it influenced his life choices or even research choices that, that his, his, he he grew up in persecuted times. Um, yeah, you know, because we had so much one-on-one time, uh, these were things I got to talk to him about, you know, his, his early experiences and what they went through in the war. Um, you know, basically, um, Bulgaria um, was occupied by the Nazis early on. Um, there was a certain, uh, well, definite level of of collaboration a very strange situation uh developed um in that king boris in bulgaria uh decided that they would protect the jews of bulgaria to an extent but they had invaded macedonia next door and basically allowed uh even collaborated with the nazis in um in sending the Jews of Macedonia to the death camps, Treblinka, uh, in most instances. Uh, There went uh, all of my family on my father's side, uh, with the exception of my grandfather. Um, So, um, you know, it was a difficult situation. As you mentioned, his, his father spent time in a concentration camp, but when it burned down and he helped uh, the people that were victims of that. Uh, they decided to let him go. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, after the war, uh, Bulgaria became a communist country. Uh, there was, again, increase in anti-Semitism, and um, that's when he emigrated to Israel in 1949. What came out of this? Um again, it's not something he dwelled upon. However, I think that um, it probably caused him to take nothing for granted uh, in life. He was an extremely open-minded person. Um, he also wasn't tainted by politics, which is, is so easy to have happen. Um, you know, I can give uh, a lot of examples. Uh, in, in 1999, when I met Professor Mishulam, I also met uh, Professor Mahmoud El Sali uh, from the University of Mississippi, uh, who was an Egyptian. And I wondered, geez, how are these guys going to get along? But in fact, they've been colleagues forever. And, um, you know, uh, the politics of their uh, their nations uh, never entered into their relationship. Also, when I went to do research on cannabis in Morocco in 2002, um, I was delighted 
with how curious people were about Professor Mishulam there and the reverence that they had for him. So it really transcended politics. Uh, finally, uh, Professor Mishulam had Palestinian researchers in his lab. Um, you know, and again, there, uh, the business was science, it wasn't politics. It reminds me of, of how you referred to his, his thought that he wasn't as interested in the, in the you know, he, he thought that science should inform regulations and policy. I can imagine him having that same idea about politics and, and, and race and how he interacted with others, where, where it's like the science was, was the priority, and, and, and it, it's better for us to all be, all be friends and focus on the science than letting the, that, the rest of the world into our lab to, to slow us down. You bet. Yeah. So I'd like to finish this episode um, with, uh, you know, a bit of a, a personal question for you. I really appreciate um, the time that you've offered us um, and, and sharing your, your personal stories of Dr. Mishulam. You know, obviously, the two of you were such good friends as to feel like family. And uh, I'm curious, you know, what was Dr. Mishulam's impact on you as both a cannabis researcher, but also as a human being? Uh, well, he was a role model in every respect. He was a very magnanimous and magnetic guy, uh, very warm, um, funny. Uh, you know, I mentioned we had this Im immediate bond as a fellow Sephardic Jew. Um, I considered him like my surrogate uncle. He was 22 years older than me. Uh, he looked a little bit like my father. Um, you know, for all I know, we could have been genetic cousins on some level because um, there was interchange uh, during the Ottoman era between it was uh, Bulgaria and Macedonia were all part of the Ottoman Empire at that time. But, um, you know, it was a great relationship and uh, I miss him. I was really proud um, that he asked me to write the first chapter of his last book in 2005. Um, he thought that they needed a, an article on the history of cannabis and that um, should uh, begin with one of the oldest cannabis cultures in India. And as it uh, happened, I had this huge amount of data I'd amassed with nowhere to go. And here he asked me to write a book chapter. And so I, I was very pleased with that. Also, uh, he provided me with what I think is one of the best compliments I've ever had in my life. Mm. Um, it was probably about 2008. We were at a conference in London together, and uh, he tried to introduce me to somebody I already knew, uh, your Gerich, the Swiss scientist, and he said something to the effect that of, um, I'd like you to meet uh, my friend Ethan Russo. And then he said, he has many crazy ideas. And <laughs> I, I laugh like hell, because if you knew Rafi, uh, that was a great compliment. And I certainly took it as such. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful story, and yeah. um, I can imagine that, you know, right now in this, this you know, week or two after his passing, um, Th those types of thoughts are are uh, are heavy, you know, on your heart as as you you know look back and appreciate your friendship. So, thank you, Ethan, for um, 
you know, taking the time to discuss uh, Dr. Mishulam with us and sharing your personal stories, because, um, you know, as we all know, over time, um, you know, history changes and, and people forget. And it's very important to um, to record these people who mean so much to us so so that we can remember them as 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 they were. So thank you, Ethan. Amen. All right. So, uh, you dear listener, if you would like to, uh, hear more from Dr. Russo, and I think you do, um, I've got a bunch of places for you to check out. Um, at the top of the list is, uh, you can go check out, uh, Dr. Russo's company where, um, he does, uh, research that's, uh, Credo Science and that's, uh, Credo-Science.com. Um, you can also find, uh, EthanRusso.org. And if you go to the library tab, um, you can see all of Ethan's papers there under that tab. And which is really convenient if you want to, um, look at his work without, you know, trying to find out, you know, where the papers are online and trying to get permissions to download them and all that kind of stuff. Ethan's a, a big fan of, of, of having as, as many of his papers available as possible. Um, if you would like to, uh, read out to Ethan uh, directly. Um, he always offers his email address, which is ethanrusso at comcast.net. And, you know, I just want to say that Ethan, you know, I think gets, gets back to everybody, or at least tries to get back to everybody, but also realize that he is an active, everyday researcher still. And so sometimes it takes him a while to get back with folks. And, um, you know, you might you might not get the reply you want until he's, you know, stuck in an airport somewhere for a couple hours. Um, and then uh, there's a great series on the Shaping Fire uh, YouTube channel, uh, the Ethan Russo Shaping Fire Sessions, which is a series of, uh, of 10 short videos on an array of topics that um, I thought were being under uh, under considered in cannabis. And so Ethan and I sat down in his front room and he addressed um, those various topics. And then finally, um, you know, I don't think anybody has uh, appeared on Shaping Fire as much as Ethan have has. And there's I think there's uh, either six or seven just fantastic episodes um, where Ethan uh, shares his research on you know a range of topics from uh, cannabis terpenes, the endocannabinoid system, psilocybin, migraines. I mean, it's all like really juicy stuff. So I recommend you go back and and check out the the, the Shaping Fire catalog of episodes. Um, it's easily searchable if you just put Ethan Russo in, and it'll pop them all up for you. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shangolos on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.